Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We continue in our study of God's holy word, in particular His creative act. Genesis chapter 1. By way of introduction, I want to make mention of an article in Charisma News, October 2017. It's the first time in 20 years of pastoral ministry I've quoted Charisma News. It is not a friendly quote. <laughs> Charisma News, October 2017. Dr. Michael Brown, and I've added this portion, ministry partner Benny Hen, a key figure in the wildly charismatic Brownsville revival and the foremost opponent of John MacArthur's Strange Fire book and conference. Okay, that, that part was in brackets. Dr. Michael Brown says that while the topic of creationism frequently comes up on his radio show, he does not have a strong opinion about the creation account. He says there are compelling arguments for both young earth creationism and old earth creationism, which assumes God guided the evolutionary process over millions of years. Uh, Dr. Brown is arguably the foremost apologist of the mainstream charismatic movement. An apologist is supposed to be a defender of the faith. And sadly, Dr. Michael Brown has departed from the faith in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, is he, is he apostatized? Has he denied the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, no, not directly, but he's brought question to the very first chapter, the very first verses of God's Word, saying your position on them, whether you believe God or not, doesn't really matter. Whether you believe His literal Word, day one, day and night, day two, sky and water, day three, dry land and plants, the day we're on this very day, day three, day four, sun and moon and stars. Whether you believe God created according to His revelation, or whether you believe Big Bang cosmology and evolutionism doesn't really matter, as long as you generally believe God created. Saints, that's a dangerous position, delivered by ultimately a dangerous man. Now, one, I would say any man who's a ministry partner of Benny Hinn should not be someone you receive as an instructor in theology, as a teacher of God's Word. Anyone who stands against Pastor MacArthur's attempt to love and bless our charismatic friends by bringing the light of God's word to many of the charismatic abuses is not a man who is trustworthy, a man you should look to for instruction, a man you should look to to learn how to defend the faith. But I'll say on a broader level, Benny Hinn aside, Brownsville Revival aside, standing against the strange fire conference aside, on a broader level, any man who brings question to Genesis, whether or not it matters, whether or not God's creation account is literal, should not be trusted as a teacher of God's Word, should not be trusted as a theologian. You do not want to receive from them. That's a dangerous and polluted well. He continues, honestly, this is one subject where I say I could go either way in terms of my understanding of Scripture as far as young earth versus old earth, and I don't have the scientific acumen to debate. You don't need a scientific acumen, saints. What you need is a biblical acumen. What has God said? God has spoken very clearly on this, and He has spoken in such a way as to be understood, thus the claim that it's clear. Brown says in a recent video, most things I like to come down with a definite position and say, this is my view. That's not actually true. He can't even say Benny Hinn's a heretic. 
He can't even say Benny Hinn's a dangerous false teacher. So no, that's not actually true. He's a dangerous man in many ways. But he's dangerous in that he brings question to God's word from the very first chapter in the very first verse. In my humble view, he says, the scriptures could be read either way in terms of a young earth or old. But this much I know, the main message is to tell us who God is and the nature of God. That's what we should focus on. You know the first thing the Bible tells us about who God is? He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that creator communicated clearly and deliberately day by day how he went about creating the heavens and the earth by divine fiat through his own spoken word. Brown says he has heard thought-provoking points from people on both sides of the debate and does not have a clear opinion. Quote, I've had on my line of fire radio show old earth creationists who believe the earth is millions of years old and that's the best way to reconcile biblical data with scientific data. And I've had on the show young earth creationists who say, no, no, we are misreading the biblical data to make it conform to what we think science is saying. The best science indicates that the earth is young and that's what scripture plainly teaches. The question is, what is my view? Because I'm asked that all the time. Well, we read in the book of Exodus, Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, we read a forthright statement. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there it is. The Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. Now I fully understand where young earth creation has come from. I understand that they would say this is the most plain and natural reading of the text. They would also point to the biblical genealogies and the biblical genealogies you could argue make a good case for saying the earth is young. I respect that view and I understand it. I'm not a scientist though and I cannot decide what science says. So for me, the ultimate question is what does scripture say? Now this is convoluted. You should be catching that. You can make a good case for young earth creation based on what you would say is a plain meaning of scripture. I also look at the other verses and I look at them seriously. So we put the genealogies aside for a moment and ask, could they be read differently? And some would say yes. Now remember the genealogies go from Jesus back to Adam, showing that he is the second Adam and thus the only one who could come and bear our sin as our kinsman redeemer. He goes on, I recognize that God's word does tell us that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and I see the word yom, day in the book of Genesis. It can be used for daytime, day and night, right? Or it can be used for day and night together. That's a yom. Or it is in the second chapter, the phrase biom, literally the day of simply means when. And then we know there's the day of the Lord that can be a longer period of time. And then there are other passages in scripture that seem to speak of God working in a way that is over a period. Now I read all of that, not, not to assault ultimately Dr. Michael Brown, but he's a great example of bad teaching, of convoluted teaching. He's, he's both a great example of convoluted teaching when it comes to Benny Hinn and those worst of worst heretics and wolves in sheep's clothing in the charismatic movement. He is exceedingly compromised with them, often will partner with them, and then will stand off and make some level of criticism against them, but then he'll show up again on their platform, partnering with them, calling them brother, and warning others to not call down the wrath of God on them by questioning the Lord's anointed. But here he questions the word of God. 
And he suggests, as again, one of the preeminent apologists for the charismatic movement, supposed to be an apologist for the Christian faith, he suggests that it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis and that it's just really not clear it could go either way. And saints, there's one thing I want you to take away from our study of Genesis. It is exceedingly clear. And you can go either way. You can believe God or you can disbelieve God. But God has spoken clearly. It's not ambiguous. He didn't mean for it to be ambiguous. We either believe God or we don't. That's the simple truth. And so here we are on day three. The title of this message, quite simple, day three, dry land and plant life. Will we get to plant life? I don't know. I don't know. And you think, Pastor, how complex can dry land be? Well, we'll see. So day three, dry land and plant life. Let's read together Genesis 1, 1 through verse 13. The clear, inspired, inerrant, preserved, and authoritative word of God. Let's read together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Day three, dry land and plant life. Before we get into the text properly, let's once again lay out the big picture. I mean to be redundant. I mean to keep repeating the same foundational facts of the Christian worldview as we study Genesis. I mean to undo some of the constant brainwashing we experience in our largely post-Christian world. Saints, we are immersed in a post-Christian world that's constantly assaulting the truth of God's Word beginning from the very first verse, very first chapter. And so let us undo this atheistic, big bang, cosmology-driven, evolution-infatuated, naturalistic, materialistic worldview that we are all immersed in through movies, television shows, schools, colleges, cartoons, magazines, newspapers, news stations, everywhere, all the time. If you're not conscious, you don't even realize you're in the pot and it's boiling. It's boiling 
atheistic Big Bang cosmology and evolution. You're in the stew, saints. And so let us bring the word of God to our hearts and minds to renew them. Again, basically there are just two worldviews. Genesis or nonsense. That's it. Genesis or nonsense. Eternal creator God or eternal cosmos. An eternal creator God is logical and biblical and evidenced everywhere we look. An eternal cosmos is illogical, is unbiblical, and there is no evidence of an eternal cosmos. It defies reason. It defies all true science. Just as the true history of Genesis records, the eternal self-existence, all-powerful, all-wise, holy, triune God created everything without pre-existing material out of nothing, literally, ex nihilo, in six literal days. The one true God is unlike the fictitious idols that man created. Mankind's idols did not create everything from nothing. They are said to merely fashion and shape the eternal material of the universe. The one true God created space, time, and matter about 6,000 years ago. The one true God created a mature universe with the appearance of age, just like he created birds, not eggs, just like he created a man and a woman, not a bouncing baby boy, and a pink, cuddly baby girl. All of God's creation was good. There was no sin and no death. What is known as the survival of the fittest, millions of years of death and struggle, did not create the species. In accordance with his own infinite wisdom, the one true, omnipotent, omniscient God created a vast array of complex life forms to procreate after their kind, as we just read. Ex nihilo, nihil fit, the laws of causality, the law of probability, the law of biogenesis, the second law of thermodynamics, and the theory of information that should be a law all confirm the biblical worldview. Any law and all laws of every kind confirm the biblical worldview. The immaterial laws that govern the material universe so that we might know the universal truth of mathematics. The immaterial, universal, invariant laws of logic that govern immaterial thought so that we might know good thought from bad thought or truth from insanity. And the immaterial, universal, invariant laws of morality that govern thought and deeds all confirm the biblical worldview. All true science confirms the biblical worldview. The very concept of truth upon which science is built demands and confirms the biblical worldview. You deny the God of Scripture, the God of truth. You deny yourself any path to truth. The God, our God, is the God of truth. All truth is His. Without Him, it's possible to have truth. Unless you know everything, all that you think you know may well be contradicted by the vast amount of information you don't know. Unless you know everything that there is to know, or you know the God who knows everything there is to know, and He has revealed some truth to you, you can't truly know anything. Truth is that which comports to the mind of God as revealed in His Word. The people of the God of truth are the people of truth. Once again, I give you one further reminder before we get into God's revealed truth from today's text. Don't be fooled, saints. This is not a debate between the spiritual versus the realist or the religious versus the irreligious. It's truth and the true religion revealed by God versus absurdity 
and the false religion of atheism and its wicked offspring, naturalism, materialism, Big Bang cosmology, and evolutionism. And there we stand, saints, with both feet firmly planted on the Word of God, starting in the first book, the first chapter, the first verse. Day three, dry land and plant life. Let's look together at verses 9 and 10. First point, the creation of dry land. How much controversy can there be in that? There is controversy in nearly every word of every verse of Genesis chapter 1. And that the devil assaults nearly every word of every verse of Genesis chapter 1 because this is the foundation upon which everything is built. This is the foundation of God's revelation of himself. Verse 9, Then God said, just as we saw on day 1, just as we saw on day 2, this is divine fiat, divine decree. God sovereignly declares and it happens. Then God said, quote, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. There was a globe covered by water, a lifeless globe, freshly created, consumed by water. And the Lord said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, verse 9 ends with. The Lord spoke, the Lord decreed, and it happened accordingly. It was so. Thus dry land appeared. Thus the waters were separated from the land. The Lord raised up the land and made the continent or the continents. Very likely there was a continent. Very likely there was some form of Pangea. Very likely... There was one great land mass, don't know for sure. What we know is he made land. He separated the waters from the land. And upon that land, there would be life. He spoke and it was so. Saints, that is true historically and true presently. God speaks and it is so. That is your God. That is my God. There is nothing too hard for our God. There is no miracle in Scripture too hard for our God. The God who spoke the heavens and earth into existence is the God who made the donkey talk, the God who made the steel float, the God who made the sun stand still, the God who made the sun go back 10 degrees, the God who parted the Red Sea with a wall of water on the right and the left, the God who made the waters of the Jordan stand up in a heap so that Israel could pass through on dry ground into the promised land. He is the God who had... Jonah swallowed by a great fish and spit out on a beach, likely bleached white, that he might be a very unusual prophet, to go and preach the judgment of God, to turn a whole city-state to repentance and faith in the one true God. He is the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of the virgin, the virgin-born child, fully God, fully man, crucified for sinners, taking the fullness of the wrath of the Almighty on behalf of all those who repent, confess Him as Lord, the God who in flesh was laid in a tomb for three days, was raised again on the third day by the power of the Father, by the power of Himself, the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death. He is the God who is returning again on a great white horse, the incarnate one, and every knee will bow. And those that do not bow and confess Him as Lord, they will be slain with the sword of His mouth and the blood will flow to the horse's bridle. He is the God who will speak this universe and all that's in it out of existence and there will be no place for sinners left to hide. And He's the God who will recreate the heavens and the earth in a moment. And heaven will come down. And He will rule and reign. He is the God who will be the light of the new heavens and new earth. There will be no need for sun or moon or stars. This is your God. This is my God. This is the God. This is the God of everyone and everything. The God who created dry land. The God who said... Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. That's your God. That's the God we pray to. That's the God we trust with our lives. That's the God we trust with the lives of our loved ones. That's the God we trust with our future. That's the God we have trusted with our eternal soul. The God that speaks and it is so. Verse 10. And God called the dry land earth. And gathering together the waters, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. It's perfect. It's uncorrupted. It reflects the glory of our perfect, holy creator. Job 38, verses 1 through 11, provides a beautiful and humbling commentary on God's creative act. This is the creator talking to his creature, Job, and you and I. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And of course, it was Job in its proper context. But more broadly speaking, saints, it's Dr. Michael Brown. More broadly speaking, it's Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Carl Sagan, Hugh Ross, and every other Big Bang cosmologist, evolutionist, whether they profess to be followers of Christ, whether they profess to be Christians and yet embrace this atheistic worldview, or whether they deny the God of the Bible and embrace atheism outright, along with its fruit of naturalism, materialism. Do you understand again what naturalism is? Let me explain once more. Naturalism is to say there is only that which is natural. There is nothing supernatural. And that's a faith statement. Because unless you have searched the cosmos and all spiritual realms beyond it, you cannot know there is nothing supernatural. Naturalism is a faith position. Materialism follows closely at its heels, saying all there is is this material universe. There is nothing else. Again, that's a faith statement. You cannot know it to be true. And so we as Christians, we are a people of faith, but we're not a people of blind faith, not like a naturalist, not like a materialist. That's a fool's faith. The fool of Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. They have done no good thing. We all have faith, saints. We all have faith. An atheist faith, a theist faith, or a biblical Christian's faith who believes God, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. Back to Job 38. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
You don't want to be in that group. Darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Where do you get true knowledge from? Press an atheist on that. Any honest atheist will say they don't possess it. They don't have it. All I know is that I don't know anything is a common profession from atheists. And that's an accurate statement, except that they just claim that they know something. They know that they don't know anything. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where would we go to get knowledge, true knowledge? God, who is omniscient, is the only source of absolute knowledge, certainty. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you. You shall answer me. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's what we're talking about. Is it not day three? Dry land. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Oh, saints. So much of what is called science today is speculation, just mere speculation. They weren't there. They don't know. God created. He was there. He knows and He's revealed what He has done in the true history called Genesis. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Says verse 4. Tell me if you have understanding. Skip to verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is an important and interesting issue. When were the angels created? I don't know for certain. I very much suspect they were created before day three. Because on day three, it would seem, as verse four of Job 38 says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding Who determines this measurement? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The angels were there when God created dry land on the third day and they worshiped God for his wisdom and his power and his creative act. When were they created? Before day three. That I know. Verse 8, Or who shut the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, This far you may come, but no further, and here your proud waves must stop. Saints, that's day three, is it not? Genesis 1, 9, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. He set the bars and let dry land appear. Who shut in the sea with its doors? Who said, This far you may come, but no further. And here your proud ways must stop. God did, saints. He said it. And He said it on day three. Now, how valuable would dry land be on a 4.5 billion year old earth? Have you thought about that? How valuable would dry land be on a 4.5 billion year old earth? Our secular friends 
say that's how old this earth is. I want to tell you that dry land would be the most precious thing on the planet if this was a 4.5 billion year old planet because there would be no dry land. Scarcity drives up value, saints. There would be no dry land on a 4.5 billion year old earth. You know how many years it takes for the continents to be swept away by erosion? 10 million years. That's it. You see, when scientists start throwing out these mind-boggling numbers about a 4.5 billion year old earth and a 13 billion year old cosmos, you must understand that there are significant problems with those numbers. They need those numbers to justify accidental life, but they don't. However, those numbers create a whole other set of problems. In an article titled Eroding Ages by Taz Walker, we find many of those problems set forth. He says this, The continents cannot be billions of years old because they would have eroded away long ago. It was James Hutton, the Scottish physician turned geologist, who suggested in 1785 that the earth was immensely old. His famous assertion, there was no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end, paved the way for Darwin's theory of evolution. He was motivated by this new theory. Today, most geologists take Hutton's views for granted. Evolutionists generally accept that the continents formed at least 2.5 billion years ago. The published ages of parts of Australia are greater than 3 billion years. Much of the rest of the continents is said to be 3 to a half billion years old. A similar story is told for the other continents. The age of their basement rocks is in the billion-year range. These ideas are found to be wholly unconvincing. Once we take a closer look, we find that there are many geological processes that indicate the continents are not as old as evolutionists say. One such problem for the old age idea is erosion. The continents cannot be billions of years old because they would have eroded away long ago. There would be nothing left. How do we measure erosion? Water is the main culprit that dissolves many minerals and loosens soil and rock from the landscape, transporting them to the ocean. Day after day, year after year, like an endless procession of freight trains, the rivers of the world cart tons of decomposed rock across the continents and dump it in the ocean. By comparison, the amount removed by winds, glaciers, and ocean waves pounding the coastline is small. Most of the continent is said to be older than a half billion years, while some of it's supposed to be older than three billion years. Orthodox geologists are surprised that very little erosion has occurred in all this time. Well, that's a lot of time. And we can actually measure erosion rates right now in real time. And so we apply that to a half billion years or three billion years. Wow. Where's all the erosion? Why, why is there still so much landmass here visible above the water? Water can do its eroding work once it falls as rain. It collects into regions called drainage basins, areas easily identified on a topographic map. By sampling the mouth of the river, we can measure the volume of water discharged from the basin and the amount of sediment it carries. It's difficult to be exact because some sediment is rolled or pushed along the bottom of the river. Bed load, as it's called, is not easily observed. Sometimes an arbitrary allowance is included to account for it. 
Another problem is how to handle the rare catastrophic events. Although these can transport huge quantities of sediment in a very short time, they are almost impossible to measure. Bed load and catastrophe both transport more sediment than is measured directly. In other words, whatever measurements we have, it's actually greater than that. Nevertheless, sedimentologists have researched many of the world's rivers and calculated how fast the land is disappearing. And I had about 20 of those rivers for you, but I I thought I wouldn't bore you with it, so we'll keep it simple. The measurements show that some rivers are excavating their basins by more than 39 inches of height per 1,000 years, while others move only 0.04 inches in 1,000 years. The average height reduction for all the continents of the world, this is what matters, is about 2.4 inches per 1,000 years, which equates to some 24 billion tons of sediment per year. That's a lot of top dressing. On the scale of one human lifespan, these rates of erosion are low. But for those who say the continents are billions of years old, the rates are staggering. A height of 93 miles of continent would have eroded in 2.5 billion years. 93 miles of continent would have eroded in 2.5 billion years. It defies common sense. If erosion had been going on for billions of years, no continents would remain on earth. This problem has been highlighted by a number of geologists who calculated that North America should have been leveled in 10 million years if erosion had continued at the average rate. This is a ridiculously short time compared with the supposed 2.5 billion year age for the continents. To make matters worse, many rivers erode the height of their basins much faster than average. Even the slowest rate of 0.4 inches reduction in height per 1,000 years, the continents with an average height of 2,000 feet should have vanished long ago. So if you take the slowest possible rate, they still would have vanished long, long ago. These rates not only erode the idea of the billion-year-old continents, but also crumble the concept of ancient mountains in general. Mountainous regions with their steep slopes and deep valleys are eroded fastest. Just like if you're sanding a piece of wood, right? What gets sanded off first? The high spots do. Erosion rates of 39-inch height reduction per 100 years are common in the alpine regions of Papua New Guinea, Mexico, and the Himalayas. One of the fastest recording regional height reductions is 750 inches per 1,000 years from a volcano in Papua New Guinea. The Yellow River in China could flatten a plateau as high as Everest in 10 million years. The mountain ranges such as the of Western Europe and the Appalachians of Eastern North America are even harder to explain because they're not as high as Everest yet are supposed to be several hundred million years old. If erosion has been going on for this long, these mountains should not exist. Erosion is also a problem for flatland surfaces that are considered very ancient. These surfaces extend over large areas yet show little or no sign of erosion. Furthermore, the surfaces have no evidence of having had any other layers on them. An example is Kangaroo Island off of southern Australia, which is about 87 miles by 37 miles wide. Its surface is said to be at least 160 million years old based on the fossil content and radioactive dating. Yet it's extremely flat over most of its area. The land is virtually the same as when it was uplifted. 
Erosion has hardly touched the exposed surface. How could it stay so flat so long without being eroded by 160 million years of rain? That's a lot of rain, saints. A whole lot of rain. Why do the continents and mountains still exist if they're being eroded so quickly? Why do so many landforms claim to be old show no sign of erosion? The simple answer is that they're not as old as they claim to be, but young, like the Bible says. However, this is not philosophically acceptable to evolutionary geologists, so other explanations are sought in vain. For example, it's suggested that the mountains still exist because uplift is constantly replacing them from below. Consequently, the mountains would have been eroded and replaced many times over in 2.5 billion years. However, although uplift is occurring in mountainous areas, such a process of uplift and erosion could not go on for long without removing all the layers of the sediments. We would therefore not expect to find any old sediment in the mountainous areas if they had been eroded and replaced many times. Let me state that plainly for you. There shouldn't be seashells at the top of Mount Everest, but there are. If Mount Everest started as a seabed, and it did, and got lifted up into the sky, as it did, and if that occurred millions of years ago, and Everest is supposed to be at least 60 million years old, saints, there wouldn't be any seashells. They long ago would have been dissolved. Long, 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 long ago, they would have been dissolved. All there would be is barren, stark rock. But indeed, there are seashells. Not just on Everest. On mountain peaks all over the planet, there are seashells. And very likely, Mount Everest and those other great mountain ranges were raised up at the flood saints when the fountains of the earth opened up and great earthquakes took place, great catastrophe took place globally and the plates moved radically and the mountains were shoved up shortly, I would say, after the flood because all the mountains of the earth were covered. We'll get to that when we get to the flood in Genesis. So surprisingly, sediments of all ages from young to old are preserved in mountainous regions. The idea of continual renewal by uplift does not solve the problem. The slow and gradual story suggested by the Scottish physician Hutton 200 years ago does not make sense. Old earthers claim that the continents are over 2.5 billion years old, yet using their own assumptions, the continents should have eroded away in 10 million years. Note that this 10 million years is not the estimated age of the continents. Rather, it highlights the bankruptcy of uniformitarian ideas. Geologists who believe the Bible consider that the mountains and continents we have today were formed as a consequence of the flood of Noah's day. When the continents were uplifted at the end of the flood, the incredible energy of the retreating floodwaters carved the landscape. Not a lot, geologically speaking, has happened in the 4,500 years since then. How old are those great mountain ranges? About 4,500 years old just after the flood, saints. The creation of dry land is a point of debate with our secular friends, with our atheistic friends, and with some professing Christians who have bought into the atheistic world view. 
Psalm 104 verses 1 through 9 is worthy of our consideration. Again, it acts as a commentary on day 3, the creation of dry land. Psalm 104 verses 1 through 9 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment. That's day 1, day and night. Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beam of his upper chambers in the waters, perhaps day two. Who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind. Verse four, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Now, if I'm right, that Psalm 104 verse two is speaking of day one and verse three seems to speak of day two, then perhaps verse four is saying that the angels were created on day two, which... Job 38 seems to suggest that it doesn't suggest is clear that the angels were present on day three, worshiping God in celebration of his creation of dry land and plants to follow. So verse four, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, you who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains At your rebuke, they fled. And now we have day three. And so it would seem that the best biblical explanation of when the angels were created was on day two. Again, verse seven, at your rebuke, they fled. The waters fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set the boundary that they may not pass over that they may not return to cover the earth. Day three, the creation of dry land. In a book titled, It's a Young World After All, play on Disneyland, I think, Paul Ackerman wrote this, The challenge that creation scientists have raised against Darwinian evolution has been carried forward with increasing success in every quarter. In debates on college campuses in the United States and other Western nations, such heroes of the movement as Henry Morris and Dwayne Gish have carried the battle into bastions of the educational and scientific establishment where Darwinism in its modern form has had dominance for many decades. These debates have been a triumph for the cause of creationism and an embarrassment for evolutionists. As Robert F. Smith, a member of the Western Missouri affiliate to the American Civil Liberties Union, put it, now mind you, This man would not be a friend to creationism. He's with the American Civil Liberties Union. But he said this, For the past five years I have closely followed creationist literature and have attended lectures and debates on related issues. Based solely on the scientific arguments pro and con, I have been forced to conclude that scientific creationism is not only a viable theory, but that it has achieved parity with, if not superiority over, the normative theory of biological evolution. That this should now be the case is somewhat surprising, particularly in view of what most of us were taught in primary and secondary school. In practical terms, Paul Ackerman continues, in practical terms, the past decade of intense activity by scientific creationists has left most evolutionist professors unwilling to debate the creationist professors. Too many of the evolutionists have been publicly humiliated in such debates by their own lack of erudition and by the weakness of their theory. 
At this point, the war centering around Darwinism and its control over the scientific discussion of origins is going well for the creationist and evolution is being defeated in many battles. The arguments from design and the arguers from design are defeating Darwinism at every turn. But there is one issue that is yet to receive its proper due. I'm speaking to the issue of age. Even for many creation scientists and Christian laymen, the issue has been considered one to be avoided. Many Christians have been fearful of taking the initiative on this subject. They feel that since evolution has too strong a case for long age periods, creationism can only suffer and be embarrassed by bringing up the topic. There is roughly a parallel view held by the evolutionists. They feel that to have challenged Darwin was an act both arrogant and ignorant. But to question the millions and billions of years of time, supposedly extending back beyond the reach of man's historical experience, can only be characterized as insane. To the average person, it is certainly more bizarre and mind-boggling to question modern scientific conclusions regarding the age of things than it is to debate the general question of evolution. Thus, the matter has often been treated by even some of the most stalwart defenders of creationism as a skeleton in the closet. The purpose of this book, Paul Ackerman's book, it's a young world after all, the purpose of this book is to open the closet door. Of all the topics that constitute the arsenal of the scientific creationists and their challenge to the dominance of the evolutionist establishment, there is none stronger than the case for recent creation. Yet many fellow Christians who have finally been persuaded by and have become generally sympathetic to the great body of anti-evolution arguments and evidences are still afraid of the age issue. In other words, many have been emboldened now to stand against Darwinian error by the truth of Scripture, clear that God designed life and that life procreates after its kind. Yet they're afraid of the age issue. They're dead wrong in this fearfulness. The fact is that the age issue is one of creationist's strongest areas, yet it remains the least understood. The case for a young universe stands at the same place where the battle against Darwinian evolution stood just a few years ago, when the majority thought the anti-evolutionists were crazy. As one of my colleagues put it upon first hearing that I was a creationist, quote, not believing in evolution is like not believing in gravity. Today, just a short time later, the whole situation has been turned around so that Darwinism is on the defensive. The same thing can and must happen on the question of age. As Caleb reported back to Moses after spying out the land of Canaan, quote, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Numbers 13.30 Let me be blunt on this matter, says Paul Ackerman. Evolutionists around the world have had to learn the hard way that evolution cannot stand up against creationism in any fair and impartial debate situation where the stakes are the hearts and minds of the intelligent undecided, but nevertheless the objective and open-minded. Experience will prove that the same is true for the age issue as well. Evolutionists Beliefs regarding the origin and development of life cannot withstand the scrutiny of an informed opposition, and neither can evolutionist claims to the effect that the universe has existed for 10 to 20 billion years and that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, and I would add and that the continents are 3 to 2.5 billion years old. 
Ackerman closes, saying, to delay the collapse of the widespread public acceptance of such claims, it will be necessary for evolutionist scientists to carefully avoid debate. End quote. Dear saints, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth about 6,000 years ago. And on day three, he created dry land. He created the bedrock and he created the fertile, nutrient-enriched topsoil. We have the actual historical, step-by-step, chronological record of his creative act in Genesis. Let's take a few minutes in closing to consider the scientific study of geochronology from Dennis R. Peterson. What is geochronology? I've had this in my notes waiting for some months, really. Geochronology, the science of determining Earth's age. Day three, God created the Earth, dry land, dry Earth. And he called that dry land Earth. What does geochronology mean? Geochronology is the study, the geo, meaning Earth, Chronology having to do with time sequence. It's a clock. How can we clock the Earth's age? Scientists are aware of over 70 methods that can give us an idea of the Earth's age. We can call these geologic clocks. The vast majority of them point to a very young Earth, and yet you never, ever will hear about them. Only a few of them are portrayed to support billions of years. Those few are loudly publicized to make evolution digestible to the uninformed public as if to support the long-held myth of gradualism. Gradualism is the evolutionary concept that present slow processes made the mountains and landforms. Dynamic large-scale catastrophe is ruled out. Stretching present processes over millions of years supposedly accounts for it all. But if present processes can be seen to verify a relatively young earth, how will that affect our understanding and the theories about the origin of the earth and for that matter, even the universe? All of the systems we will explore are scientifically known, but generally unpublicized and unknown among even many teachers. We have good reason to ask, why is this information suppressed? Now, I'm not going to cover them all for the sake of time. You can do your own research. There are over 70 of these geological clocks. Interplanetary dust is one of them. Did you realize our Earth is regularly gathering dust from the cosmos? So is the moon. Here on the Earth, the dust is hardly detectable. Even so, we should expect millions of tons of it has washed into the sea over the last few billion years. But it's not there. It's not there. In connection with interplanetary dust are rocks that fall out of space upon our earth. These little space rocks, right? We all like to go out and find these little rocks. You can go see them in museums. And these meteors, we call them, are found where in the crust of the earth? Where are they found? Just on the surface, saints. Just on the surface. And oddly enough, they shouldn't be found there even if the surface is as old as they say and these rocks are as old as they say that have fallen out of space to the earth. There shouldn't be any meteorites sitting out there because they would have eroded long ago. Since the moon has no erosion but is also accumulating cosmic dust at a regular rate, we should discover something. At present rates, NASA experts were expecting a tremendous layer of dust on the moon due to its 4.5 to 5 billion year old supposed age. The most conservative estimates were expecting 54 feet of dust on the moon. Can you imagine landing on that? When they landed, they found only an eighth, an eighth of an inch to three inches of dust at the most. 
And that much dust would have taken fewer than 8,000 years to stack up on the moon. Logic, science, evidence indicates a very young moon based upon the dust upon it. How about comets? What are comets? Dirt and ice. Ice. Comets make their circuit around the sun at different rates, but every time they come around the sun, a great amount of that ice burns off. Comets have a short life expectancy. Knowing this, it's quite apparent that the comets will eventually disintegrate completely. How long would that take? Measuring the observable rate of a comet disintegration, scientists realize that all the short period comets would be gone in as little as 10,000 years. Yet there are up to 5 million comets still orbiting in our solar system. They should all have been gone after 10,000 years. How do we explain this? In order to explain how it is these comets are still in existence, these comets that would all have melted and been gone after 10,000 years, they created something. Scientists created something called an Oort cloud. An Oort cloud, they have no evidence of its existence. They have not seen it on any telescopes. They've not measured it. They've not sent a satellite out beyond the edge of our solar system to observe this thing. But it must exist since these comets exist, right? And we know these comets can't be less than 10,000 years old because the cosmos is billions of years old and so there must be an Oort cloud these comets are coming from even though we have zero evidence of that. That's called a rescuing device. That means you see your scientific observable evidences and they don't agree with your worldview, your atheistic Big Bang cosmologist evolutionary worldview. So you refuse to submit to the evidences and you create something out of thin air born out of faith. The Oort cloud is a faith cloud. Comet saints point to a young cosmos, a young solar system, and a young earth. How about oil deposit pressure? Oil deposit pressure. Think about it. You've got this oil. You've got this pressure down there. You you go and you drill, and you've all seen it, I'm sure. The oil shoots up, and the clampets get rich. Naturally, over time, the oil pressure would dissipate, and the time it would take is measured in thousands of years, not millions. Findings have revealed tremendous pressures in very deep wells. If those oil deposits had been there for more than 5,000 years, in some cases, there would be no pressure left at all. The only objective explanation is that these oil deposits were suddenly and catastrophically encased in these flood-produced layers just a few thousand years Ago. We've already talked about erosion. I didn't mention this. When you have erosion of the mountains and the landmass, you have sediment in the sea. Not only do we not have enough erosion of the landmass itself, we don't have enough sediment in the sea to justify billions of years of landmasses eroding. There'd be far more sediment in the sea. That's observable science. There should be at least 30 times more sediment in the ocean than there is. Again, the continents of the earth would have been worn down to sea level in just 10 million years, give or take. How about topsoil? We haven't talked about that. Day three, the Lord created dry land, but not just dry land. He created topsoil because He also creates plants to dwell on that land that need the nutrients in topsoil. He created a mature earth. One writer observed the soil which sustains life lies in a thin layer of an average depth of seven or eight inches over the face 
of the land. The earth beneath it is dead and sterile as the moon. How long does it take for its topsoil to accumulate? Scientists estimate that the combination of plant growth, bacterial decay, and erosion produces six inches of topsoil in 5,000 to 20,000 years. If the earth had been going on about the same as it is today for millions of years, one wonders why there isn't a whole lot more topsoil than there really is. This topsoil, again, points to a young earth, not an ancient earth. A couple more. The magnetic field. This one is powerful. (laughs) The phenomenon on earth that makes the directional compass point to the north and south poles can tell us something about the earth's age. Like everything else in the universe, the principle of progressive deterioration, the second law of thermodynamics, is in operation here as well. Physicist Thomas Barnes points out that the earth's magnetic field has been decaying regularly since it was first measured in 1835. This is measurable, observable science, a decay of the magnetic field. If the half-life of the field is truly what Dr. Barnes has shown from careful measurements, the conclusion is that the Earth's magnetic field would have been equal to that of a magnetic star as little as 10,000 years ago. According to Dr. Barnes, to be consistent with the laws of physics and assuming the magnetic field has continually weakened, we can only conclude that life on Earth would not have been possible more than 10,000 years ago because the magnetic field would have been so strong it would suck the very iron out of your blood as little as 10,000 years ago. Dissolved minerals in the ocean, not just sediment, but the minerals dissolved in the ocean all point to a young earth. Atmospheric helium, this is another one I like. The light gas helium used to fill balloons is steadily gathering in the outer reaches of our atmosphere. The total amount there can be measured. One of the sources for it is the constant measurable decay, measurable, observable, decay of uranium on the earth. If the earth is billions of years old, the atmosphere would be saturated with helium to such a degree that there would be up to a million times more helium there than we have now. Some have suggested that the helium must be escaping into outer space, but actually such escape is impossible. And the indication is that even more helium is being steadily added from the sun. According to some experts, the helium clock insists that the earth cannot be more than ten to 15,000 years old. We could talk about how the moon is receding. And if the earth is five billion years old, The moon should be out of sight, saints, just gone. Just gone from sight. Saints, that's just a few of the over 70 geological clocks. I thank you for the extra time to argue for a young earth created on day three as God records it in his true history. Genesis chapter 1 verse 9. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Gazing into your true word, may you increase our faith, our hope, our love, and our clear conviction that your word, Lord, is the foundation of truth. And all that would contradict it, Lord, is false. We thank you, Lord, that all true science conforms 
to the truth of your word. And we thank you for those that have labored to show us such, Father. May we labor to rightly divide the word of truth, Father, not interpreting Scripture by the fallen intellects of atheists, but interpreting Scripture with Scripture, Lord, receiving it for the clear message that it is and giving you praise as our Creator who created the heavens and the earth about 6,000 years ago on six literal days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.